0: talk about unity some more though from last week uh, it was last week right yeah last week we started this talk about unity so quick summary of the foundation of this concept (coughs) if you're not sure go back and listen to last week's message we laid a pretty solid foundation for it um and to why unity is so important right the the unity of Of the faith, the unity of the Spirit, the unity under one Lord, one God, one baptism, one Spirit, one Father, who's Father of all. This is a a key foundational piece to Paul's entire gospel. And because of this, this unity, when we're united as a people under one gospel, one Lord, and living that way, it is a testimony to the deity of Christ. This is what shows the world that Jesus is who he says he is. The fact that he can bring so many people from so many diverse backgrounds and cultures and locations and perspectives and families and unite them under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And when the church unites under that and they live that by the Spirit with supernatural might and power, it is a screaming testimony to the world that He is who He says He is and that He has done what He has said He's done. In Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians, he lays out this beautiful mystery. Of the gospel the thing that proclaims the multifaceted wisdom of God to those in the heavens and on earth this is what God is revealing Paul says this was a mystery that had not been known by those who had gone before them it had not been revealed all they had seen before then was the God of the tribe of the Israelites was one of the powerful gods He was one of the gods of many, and he was one to be feared. And many times in the Old Testament, we give insights where people, where Old Testament people realize, oh, Yahweh is the one true God. Right? Like, King Nebuchadnezzar says this in a moment of revelation where God basically humbles him, and he says, this God, the God of the Israelites, he's God. But that was not common knowledge to the world and to anybody. It was just Hey, the Israelites are coming and their God is powerful and scary. We should submit and line up. Paul's saying that this mystery that was revealed now in his day through him was this. That this, this God of the Israelites, this Lord, this God who came in the flesh as Jesus Christ, he is both the God of the Jews and the Gentiles and he is united both Jew and Gentile, together as one body, one family, with one Father. This was this great mystery that was finally revealed. This is what we call the gospel, the church. And Paul in Ephesians 3 says, this is the great mystery, guys, look what he did. He broke down the dividing wall that was between the Jews and everyone else, and he has brought them together in one family under one faith, under one Father, under one Spirit, with one baptism, united together as one. And Paul said, this mystery revealed is what is going to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to all of creation. Not just the lost, but guess what? If this mystery reveals to all of creation... The manifold wisdom of God, how much more so does it reveal it to the simple lost human beings on the planet Earth when they see it? And when they see it is when it's lived and embodied and demonstrated to them as one united people of God, functioning together, serving and submitting under one Lord. And that's kind of a key concept, one Lord. This is where we all have a real hard time uniting. We can all unite under some good concepts and truths. We can all read the Bible and be like, "Oh, God loves us. We're united in that." We're united in the fact that it says we should live right before God. <clears throat> but where we aren't united indeed in practice is united under one Lord. So many of us are disunited there. There's disunity because we are all under different lords. Most of us serve under ourselves as lords. We serve under our employers as lords. We serve under the people we um, seek their approval of, and they become our lords. But we're not united under one lord, because if we were, we'd be serving that one lord's mission and purpose. we'd look differently. Our priorities would look differently. Our decisions would look different. Our behavior would look different. And that's what I want to talk about here. So we understand why is unity important? Because it's how the world sees Christ. When Jesus is lifted up and expressed the way he intended and intends to be expressed, which is accurately, all men will come to him. That's just the truth. But instead, and this is, I'm not going to go off on a tangent against denominations, but when you think about what denominations are, they are divisions among the church according to non-primary beliefs, doctrines, teachings, traditions, whatever. But the practical effect is it creates real division. It divides this one body under one Lord, One father, one baptism. We actually have denominations that have created denominations, separated because of the form of which baptism happens. United that we need to be baptized, but we think it's full submersion. Yeah, but we think it's sprinkled. Okay, let's just split. This isn't worth being together over. We laugh because it's funny. It's literally historical fact. And then that splits. And then that splits. And then the way we understand the Holy Spirit moving creates divisions. And now we have thousands of denominations. Thousands of them. And God, just like he has always done throughout history, works with our imperfect people and our imperfect attempts to live right and do this and he's gracious to us all, but unity has to transcend these, these differing opinions, right? Paul says, don't quarrel over these, these issues. <coughs> we're to, I'm jumping ahead, but we're going to talk about unity of, of faith. The fact that John 17, 20 to 23, that's what we talked about last week, where Jesus is saying, we want you to be one with us, just as we are one together, referring to the Father and him. And he's saying, this is the type of unity we want. Just as united as the Father and the Son is, we want you united with us. That's what Jesus was praying. Can you imagine being that united and then being like, but I can't serve or minister or be part of the same family and fellowship with you because I just really, really am opposed to full submersion? It's nonsense. And then forget the denominations, just within the local church, the same denominations, there's divisions. When I tell you that people have divided over the color schemes of a sanctuary, I am not being facetious. Whole boards have split in church leadership over such things. And it's, it's, it's a scream of help from the church, is what it is. If unity is that important, then we must do what Apostle Paul says, right? In Ephesians 4, he says, we must diligently seek the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <clears throat> and that's kind of the verse that my whole thing is centered around. So I want to read it. I want to read this part because we're supposed to be united under the reign of Christ, first and foremost. That's the top part of the unity here. And you remember last week I said unity isn't something we work to create as a church. It's something we're baptized into. It's a pre-existing, eternal unity among the Godhead that they have graciously and very, very kindly welcomed us and baptized us and adopted us into this unity And we then say, thank you, God, on our knees for such an invitation. And we graciously and wholeheartedly submit to that unity, whatever it looks like, at all costs, because eternity is on the line. If we do not unite with that, then we are uniting with ourselves apart from that. And you don't want to be there. (laughs) Heaven is Christ. You understand? It is where he dwells. It is the presence of God. So if you do not want to be united with that in all of the requirements, stipulations, and blessings that come with that, then you are not where he is. And if you're not where he is, that's in the church we universally call that a bad place. An eternally bad place. So let me read Ephesians 4 here. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. And remember, this is right after chapter 3 of Ephesians, where he says our calling is to walk in unity under this new mystery as one family, united Jews and Gentiles. And some of us, we don't understand the weight of such a thing, right? We, some of us aren't familiar, we haven't studied the, the history of the church and the, and the history surrounding the church age, the massive division between Jews and non-Jews. It was monumental. Jews were not allowed to share the same silverware and, and plates and cups that a non-Jew had ever used because they would be defiled. They were not allowed to sit and eat and share a meal, a meal with a non-Jew. Because that was defiling, because they were the, the impure, the unsanctified people, and the Jews, they were the pure and the sanctified people. And because of the laws that they operated under, they they morphed and they twisted until the day of Jesus' time, where these ceremonial laws were being applied as if they were moral laws. And they allowed these ceremonial slash become moral laws to create a pride and an arrogance amongst them, as if they were better than everyone else. And so in this case, this is why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, to to magnify and highlight the disgustingness of what it had become, of how they had taken the laws he had given them and twisted them to the point where people would walk by a person on the verge of death desperately in the need of help, and they would walk by because to help him would make them unclean. And they genuinely believed in their mind that God would prefer them to stay ceremonially clean rather than help that person in desperate need. <coughs> and so the, 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 the dividing wall between Jews and non-Jews was massive. It was concrete. It was insurmountable in the Jewish teachings and minds and traditions. And then God shows up and tells all these people, here's a mystery you've not known, but that I've been working on since the time of Abraham and even before. Is that I am one Lord for Jews and Gentiles, and you guys are one family. You're one body. Under one Lord, one teaching, one baptism, one truth. And that just that blew up their entire world's understanding just like it should for us today. When we say we're united with Christ and we're allowing him to be the head, the Lord, and we submit under that, united under that thing, that should be the first and foremost uniting factor for everyone in this room and anyone who claims to be a disciple of Christ. You are 100% fully submitted to what he says, how he says to do it, when he says to do it, why he says to do it. And when you find disagreement, you're on a mission to, to eagerly pursue the unity of the Spirit between you and the Spirit you find yourself in disunity with. And this is like, oh man, this sounds so good. I have no idea what it looks like in real life, but this sounds great. I really want to be united in the Spirit, in the bond of peace. he goes on to say with all humility and gentleness humility and gentleness and with patience accepting one another in love you could break down whole teachings with every single word I just said to see how this would actually apply what does it look like to do it with gentleness what does it look like to do it with love and I don't mean hugs and affection love I mean self-sacrificial laying your life down Love, And this is where he says, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Or in some translation, he says, with the peace that binds us. Because, this is what he's saying, this is why we diligently seek the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Because there is only one body, and there is only one Spirit. Just as you were called to only one hope at your calling, to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. The grace was given to us to, a, to be able to live a life and walk in this unity. So the whole rest of the chapter goes on to say. <clears throat> what does it mean, though, to be united in the Spirit through the bond of peace? How many of you guys feel like you're at peace? Cool. I don't. If you knew what was going on in my life right now, there's no peace in my, in my mind. <clears throat> I could find peace in my heart and say, you know what? When it's all said and done, none of this matters, so I'm not going to stress over it. But I still have to convince my mind to, to think that way. <clears throat> um, this peace, right? We often say, hey, peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of God. Right? That's what that's what biblical peace is. But in this context, and what Paul's saying here, that's not even the peace he's talking about either. Peace in this context is referring to the, the assured confidence of your salvation in Christ. <clears throat> Do you guys get that? Assured confidence in your salvation of Christ. I think I screenshot. Yeah. So here's the definition. It's the... The Greek word, E-I-R-E-N-E, pronounce it however you choose. <clears throat> and it says this, of the Messiah's piece, which is the piece it's talking about here. The first definition is the way that leads to salvation. Two, the one that's most applicable here is this. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so, fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort that is. <clears throat> Let me repeat that so you can hear it again and remember it. <clears throat> when it says, united in the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace, this is what Paul is intending to communicate. United in the Spirit, in the bond of this, of the tranquil state of a soul that is assured of its salvation through Christ. And as a result of that, it fears nothing from God and it's content with its earthly lot, its earthly state, regardless of what that is. <clears throat> and Paul is saying we're supposed to be walk, diligently pursuing and protecting and guarding this unity of the Spirit, meaning the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Lord. In the bond of this peace that binds us together. And he's saying the peace that binds us together is this tranquil state of the soul that is fully assured of its salvation in Christ. It's not saying pursuing the unity of the Spirit in the bond of feeling good, feeling not stressed, we're okay. No, in the midst of a world that's trying to crucify these people. <clears throat> that's persecuting them at every turn, he's saying, we're united in this peace that the world can't know. And this is one of the demonstrations to the world that we are of Christ, that we are in Christ, and that when they see us, they're seeing Christ. And they're seeing the availability of Christ and this peace that they have no context for. But they see a whole body united under the Spirit in this bond of peace that blows their mind. Later on in Philippians, Paul talks about it, and he says, a peace that transcends our ability to understand it. Right? He says, may the peace of God guard your heart and mind in Christ. And this peace that is unable to be understood, let that thing guard you. And here Paul talks about it in more depth by giving this definition, that this peace is what bonds us together under the Lordship of Christ. So if you find yourself apart from that peace there's a solid chance that you need to evaluate whether you are genuinely saved. I know it's a big statement to make, but I'm telling you by the definition of Scripture, you need to reevaluate if you're actually confidently following the Christ. If you are a disciple of the one and you've put your hope in him, but you do not have this peace, this peace is foreign to you, then maybe you might be what what the scriptures refer to as a God-fearer. Or you are what John Wesley called a church heathen. Meaning this, you grew up in the church, you know the scriptures, you know the things, you've said the sinner's prayer 26,000 times in your life, you've responded to 1,400 altar calls, Every time a message preaches and you feel conviction, you go up and you're like, I need to make this right. And then you go right back to your your godless life afterwards or your religious life or whatever Christless life you're living. That is not a disciple of Christ. And that is not one that he would say is worthy to be his disciple. You're serving a different Lord, which is why you don't have the same peace. See, to me, this is an altar call, guys. This is truth confronting reality and allowing you to evaluate whether you are in the faith or not. It's not a condemnation. I'm just posting truth and saying, evaluate yourself by this. Do you feel like you are united with the church, this family that God has put you in, in the spirit, by this peace, this identifying factor? But there are more things we can evaluate ourselves under. If we're united in the spirit, what does that practically look like? How can you tell? We typically think of spirit, when we say spirit, as like kind of this esoteric thing. You can't see it, touch it, smell it, feel it. It's an experiential thing. Everyone experiences the spirit their own way. That's not what the Bible's talking about, and it's not even what it's concerned about. The Bible could care less how you feel or what you feel during whatever experiences or encounters or altar calls or goosebumpy things you've ever felt. Irrelevant to the truth of the gospel. Perks? Perks of encountering the Spirit? Sure. Who doesn't want that? I will take every possible manifestation and encounter of the Spirit that is available. Give it all to me. I pray it often. But my faith does not rest on it. My confidence in the Spirit does not rest on it. My confidence as a son of God and as a disciple of Jesus does not rest on whether someone prays for me and I fall down. Here's here's where I, according to Scripture, assess whether I am filled with the Spirit, whether I have the Spirit. There's this nifty, cool Scripture. In Galatians. I'm going to read it to you, starting in Galatians 5, 13. For you are all called to freedom, brothers, (laughs) only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. This is a, a foretaste. This whole section is Paul giving people insights onto what it looks like to be united in one spirit. I say, then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. I want you to listen to every time you hear the word Spirit here and recognize this is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Lord. Okay, The spirit that we're all meant to be united under. And that we're supposed to be diligently working to preserve the unity of being one with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And we're going to look at what it means to walk by the Spirit. If anyone thinks that you have a really solid grasp on that, let's see what Scripture says. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit. And the spirit that we're united under desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But you are led by the spirit. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And remember, the law... The law is what was so twisted, remember? The law that was meant for good that got twisted and made the Jews think that they were superior and better to everyone. And that the law became this oppressive, suppressive thing. And he's saying that if you you are led by the Spirit, you're not under that law. You have no need of that law. You have no need of any law to tell you what you have to do because you're being led by the Spirit who gave the law in the first place. And he says, now, just here's some practical stuff, guys, is what Paul is saying. Now the works of the flesh are very obvious. Sexual immorality, bing, 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 that's an obvious one. Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife. And now the list, like the way I see it, the list starts coming down into things that we can really relate to even today. Hatreds, strife. Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions. Today we call them denominations. Envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar about which I tell you in advance, as I told you before that those who practice such things, which means these are consistent traits in your life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Feel free to interpret that any way you like, as long as your conclusion is that you will not be part of the kingdom of God at the end. Ooh, but here's the good part. Hopefully this is the part we all want to apply. But the fruit of the Spirit. Hey, you claim you have the Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? You're being led by the Spirit. You're walking as the Spirit leads you. Here's the test. Here is the test right here. According to Scripture, this will be the fruit produced by one who is united by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, following the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires and if we live by the spirit we must also follow the spirit we must not become conceited provoking one another envying one another etc go read that over and over and over again when you get home today and all week make it your weekly devotion just reread this and think about it do a word study on every single word there you'll see that kindness does not mean being kind to another the greek word translated here means acting for the benefit of one who taxes your patience Do you understand how that's very different how we typically understand the word kindness? It doesn't take the spirit to just be kind. It takes the spirit to act for the benefit of someone who taxes your patience. When it says the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is love, it doesn't mean the love you have for your wife and children when you hug them and everything feels good. It's the type of love that provoked Jesus to climb up onto a cross. See how that goes hand in hand with kindness. It's things that require supernatural empowerment to do. That's why this is the fruit of it. Right in this list is the same exact word peace that Paul uses in the very next book that I just read to you in Ephesians. It is not peace meaning everything seems calm. The fruit of the spirit of peace here is the tranquil assurance of a soul in its salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's why it's evidence of the fact that you have the spirit. Of the fact that you are united under the spirit and therefore you're on one mission. Keep reading the list over and over and over. This joy is not happiness. Happiness is an emotion. It can change In a moment, I could be super happy my favorite football team just won the championship and then two minutes later get news that my my father died and my happiness will turn to sadness, like that. But joy in the spirit is a deep-rooted conviction that there is victory you're living from. It is a joy that can literally be caused by physical beatings. In Acts 4, it says the disciples were brought before the Pharisees. They were beaten and told not to preach anymore. And it said they left in joy because they had been found worthy to suffer in the way Christ did. They found joy in suffering because they saw the connection it brought to their Savior. That's joy. It has nothing to do with happiness. Go through every word. I'm telling you, get out of your box just do a simple word study. You just download the Blue Letter Bible app or any similar app. Open up to this verse, click on the word, and just do it and see what the word means. <clears throat> what, Steve? You want me to like, try to figure out all that education nonsense? I just want to be led by the Spirit. I just want to go in my prayer closet and feel good things. Guys... This is heaven and earth. This is salvation and not sin. This is the loss. This is the world, the witness of Christ. We have to do work. We have to diligently pursue the unity of the Spirit. And how are you going to be united with the Spirit and His body, the church, if you're not willing to do the simple work to figure out what that looks like? If you're not willing to pursue the truth that he's given us, that literally nations are are crying for access to. There's videos online that you can look up of of poverty-stricken, oppressed Chinese little churches that get Bibles delivered to them. And they ravage that thing, fighting for it as if it's food for starving people. And then there's, in that video, there's them in the corner holding this Bible, weeping. They haven't even opened it to read it yet. They're weeping because they know the value of the contents of the book. This is their access to knowing Christ in a better way than they've known Him. And it's the greatest treasure they could hold. They grab a hold of it as if it's salvation itself. And we sit here and we're like, we say things like, I need to know the Bible better. I need to learn it a little bit more. First principles, oh, but it's like 6.30 to 7.30. 7.30, Jeopardy's on, man. Like, come on. Is there a different time slot available? Like, is anyone doing it maybe on the weekend? I've really got to work some overtime. I'm trying to save for something new. That's a little inconvenient. I can't do that. Life group? Uh, I don't know. That's not my thing. You got to talk in front of people and listen to other people. This is our attitude. This is attitudes we face every day just as leaders of one small local church. We need supernatural grace and power to try to get one little body of 300 people united. United under what? United under the lordship of Jesus and the mission that he is on. That's it. It is like desperation in our hearts. God, give us supernatural strategy how to do this. Tell us how to navigate around people's objections of their favorite shows being on at that time. Give us supernatural strategy to convince us, give us grace to not just look at people and say, how do you think you're saved? Please show me in scripture the logic you came to that tells you you're saved. This isn't meant to be condemning. I'm just telling you, this is when I'm confronted with the truth, this is what confronts me. This is what tells me when I say, oh, it's too early to get up and pray before the day starts. And my body tells me that every day. The flesh is at war against the spirit. Everyone knows that intimately. But is there a vision for this thing that drives you to do that? This unity is of utmost importance. And if you don't feel like you're united, then you need to be willing to have conversations and learn and study and dig and ask for conversations with leadership or people, life group leaders, whatever, and say, what is this thing? Why, do, why is it every time Steve or Sean or Josiah or anyone gets up and preaches, I feel like I'm not doing enough? <clears throat> I've had people come up to me and tell me that life group leaders and other people, like people come to me and after at least after a lot of my most recent messages, man, I just feel like it's impossible. Like, does being a disciple of Christ mean I have to look like Steve and do what he does? It's because a few weeks ago I made a statement. I said, yeah, if you were a disciple of mine, you'd be busy. And that made a lot of people, like, skittish. Do you think being a disciple of Christ won't make you busy? What? (laughs) What? Like, what, do you think we're doing anything beyond the normal Christian life? If so, you have a horrible definition of the normal Christian life. Anything less, anything, and I'm saying this, and I'm not using hyperbole, I'm saying this according to the full witness of Scripture, anything less than 100% of who you are and what you have, if anything less of that has been fully given to the Lord... It's not enough. If you are pulling aside even a fraction for yourself and refusing to make that available to the Lord, whatever it is, emotions, possessions, time, energy, effort, it's not enough. I want to close with these examples. Can I just ask you a question, Steve? Oh, gosh. What if, listen, (laughs) but... (laughs) I just was sitting here and I said, but the Lord has led me and led me into a season where He has told me it's okay to have a part for myself. (laughs) I will try to respond honestly. Here's the thing, guys no human is the judge, right? I'm not your judge. Sean's not you judge. No one's your judge. You're going to stand before the living God someday on your own. And you're going to have to give an account for whether the things you've come up with are your own or the Lord's. Whether it is an excuse, whether you're using the God call thing or the God said thing or I feel led thing as an excuse for your flesh. Or if you sincerely, genuinely believe it's God. But I'll tell you what, in my experience... A person who's sincere and genuine and thinks it's God is someone who has humbly brought it to leaders and people they trust to present it before them to receive a multitude of counsel and decide if this is God. How many people know the Apostle Paul? Yeah, we've heard of him. Do you know in Acts 13, the Bible says this. The, The Scripture says the Holy Spirit... Said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have called for them to do. The scriptures themselves say the Holy Spirit said that. Do you know what the five leaders that were gathered together afterwards when this was said did? They got together, all five of them, they fasted and they prayed. <clears throat> After the Holy Spirit spoke, they decided to fast and pray. And then afterwards, They agreed, this is the Holy Spirit, and they sent Paul and Barnabas out. That's why leaders fast and pray. That's why Christians fast and pray, right? You're hearing, you're getting confirmation. You're not just going, hey, this one person said that. All right, let's pray together. Let's seek the Spirit. Let's see if he reveals this, if he shares it to the multitude of counsel and wisdom. And then they came to that conclusion and they sent them out. That's what sincerity looks like if you believe God has called you to do something that seems to break from the mold. But if you were called to do that, you would probably feel conflict, and it would be an act of obedience to do so. Do you understand? It would not be a fulfilling of the flesh. Man, I've always wanted this 13-foot speedboat. I know I have. And you know what? I was praying, and I really felt like God said, Steve... This is a season for you to set apart funds for that. And don't worry, it's going to be good. I'm going to use it for awesome, cool ministry when you're not busy doing fun things on it. This is something where I would say, okay, is that something my flesh has always wanted? Let me bring this to some leadership because I don't trust my own heart. Scripture tells me it's wicked and beyond my ability to know it. All of this, you can pick up any scenario you want. The bottom line is, humility is in this list a million times. You believe you heard from God, well, guess what? Unless you're, you're Jesus himself, you don't have a 100% track record of being able to discern the voice of God over your own voice, over the enemy's voice, and other people's voices. You seek counsel. That's why the Bible says in the abundance of counsel, there is wisdom. It says that the wisdom is buried deep in the heart of a man, and a wise man will draw it out. This is why the church is the church. This is why God set up leaders. This is why God says go to the leadership. Here's one little cool... Sp- what time is it? All right, yeah, we, we got time. Just kidding. <clears throat> Let me wrap it up. This one faith. There's this... My, one of my favorite stories in all of church history, and I mean in all of church history, <clears throat> is there was a place called Heron Hut, Right? In tradition, Germany area, Count Zinzendorf was this super wealthy count, and uh, he got saved. And he took all his wealth and his resources and his entire estate, and he turned it into a shelter for persecuted Christians. <clears throat> and they were called uh, the Moravians. Okay, This whole Moravian movement came out of this. And they were, they were basically a whole bunch of Anabaptists is what the, they were called, right? And they were being persecuted for their belief in essentially the spirit and his moving. And he created a, an estate, a shelter for them to come. And on this shelter, John Wesley himself had visited a couple times and said that he considered it heaven on earth. And he wished he could live there if not for the burden of the call to the, to the world that he had. <clears throat> in this place, they had 100 years of unbroken 24-7 prayer. 100 years, unbroken, 24-7 prayer. And guess what? Their prayer didn't look like a Bethel concert. <laughs> their prayer their prayer was, in essence, a outhouse, just a small outhouse that could fit two people max, and they went on rotations 24-7, one person, sometimes two would go in there, and they took the station to pray. They had no, no you know, iTunes playing in the background. They had no artist's booth set up there was no frills no nothing it was just them before the Lord praying unbroken and from this place they launched a mission movement that the earth has yet to duplicate and one of those was this there were two young men when I say young I mean like 18 to 20 years old two of them they were praying and they felt like God called them to reach the slaves with the gospel. And so they tried many different ways to get access to the slaves that they could get access to. And at every turn, they were turned away by the slave owners. The slave owners didn't want their slaves hearing anything about the gospel or Christianity or anything that would give them hope. So they had absolutely no access. So they continued to pray. And both of them came to the conclusion that the Lord wanted them to sell themselves into slavery in order to reach the slaves. <clears throat> they brought it to the leadership of this Heron Hut community, which involved which included their parents, their grandparents, their aunts, uncles. That's the leadership that was there. And they submitted it to them, and the leadership said, we need to pray about this and seek God on this, because that's a big deal for us to sacrifice our sons forever to slavery for the sake of the gospel. They prayed and sought the Lord for two years. For two years before they came to the conclusion this is God, (coughs) and then they sent their sons away. Forever, to slavery. And they brought him to the shore, and they needed to take a boat to cross his body of water to get where they were going. And they had this big prayer, weeping, sadness. And the sons, the two sons on the boat as they left, the very, (laughs) this gets me so emotional every time, so powerful. The very last words they have been heard saying or recorded in human history was that the lamb would receive his reward. That's the last thing they said from this raft to their family that had just sent them out. And it's the last thing in human history that has ever recorded their voices. But in heaven, I guarantee you their statements are echoing. Their life was forfeit for the mission. They were united in one spirit under this bond of peace that was so short, it allowed them to sell their earthly lives into slavery forever. And we don't know what happened to them, and we never will until we get to heaven. <clears throat> but I'll bet there's a boatload of slaves that are in heaven because of them. That's what it looks like to be united under one Lord, one mission, one truth, one Father, one baptism, one faith. We're out of time to go into faith, which was the whole second part of this, but... (laughs) Yeah, maybe next week. This one faith that we want to get into is the fact that he's Lord and he has given us strong teachings and principles and guidelines that we are to shape our lives around. And every Christian is supposed to look the same way as far as it goes with living according to these teachings. (coughs) It's where a lot of historical unity has come in. A lot. I wanted to talk about football teams and how they operate and how a football team, when they have a play... 11 people are part of this play, and 11 people all do completely different things on that play, but they are completely unified to accomplish one mission through all their individual actions. It's a powerful analogy, and I'll go into it next week, I guess. So I want us to leave this, this. <clears throat> what it looks like to to be united in the Spirit by this bond of peace is this, that you have seen, and you can you can... You can judge yourself according to the fruit of the spirit that the scripture gives us, according to whether you have this peace, according to whether you have genuinely submitted the whole of your life to the Lord and his purposes and his mission, that there is no dark corner of selfishness, selfish ambition or anything that you're holding on to your own desires. That's what it looks like to be united. And this, I'm telling you guys, I believe that when the church can be united in that, that's when we're going to see serious damage done to the kingdom of darkness. And we'll see serious progress towards this new move of, of what a lot of people today are calling, referring to as this new Christendom. When the world was massively influenced by Christianity in every state. What Sean has talked about multiple times, the seven mountains, the seven areas of cultural influence, right? That Christianity would dominate the seat of influence in every one of those spots. But I don't think Jesus is going to unleash the church to that until it's united. He's not going to. If he doesn't have our unity with him, he's not gonna entrust us and back us with that level of influence. We have to first be able to submit ourselves to that level of unity. And it starts by looking at the very little things. Go to Galatians 5 and read the list. Read the list of the flesh and see, where is the fruit of the flesh demonstrating in my life? Because that tells me I'm not walking according to the spirit. And then look at the fruit of the Spirit and see what fruit do you see being demonstrated and don't take the easy way route. Oh, love, I have that fruit. I love my family. No, 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 no. Check to see if you love the Judases in your life. Check to see if you love the worst of the worst. Do you love your enemies? Do you love the people who have spitefully used you and abused you and backstabbed you and caused you great harm? Do you love them? Do you find yourself able to act for the benefit of those people still? Can you be hanging on a cross in front of the very people who crucified you and say, forgive them? They don't understand what they're doing. Judge yourselves by those fruits because here's the thing. Scripture has made it clear that he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our unrighteousness and to cleanse us white as snow. That at the very inkling of a turning to him he will come running to you he is looking for any excuse and any opportunity to embrace you and pull you into the unity of his spirit to be one with him any opportunity any excuse you just got to give him a window do you understand but that window looks like this god whatever the cost While I'm in this moment, before I change my mind and my flesh takes over again, do whatever it takes. I give you full permission. And then begin to ask him, what do I change now? Practically, what do I change? What part of my schedule do I change? What part of my focus do I change? What part of my priorities do I change? What ways that I'm using my money do I change? How do I change how I'm using my time? How I'm raising my children? How I'm integrating with the church? Do I see myself as opposed to the church? Do I have frustrations with the church? God, give me the grace to go talk about it instead of harbor it. I need to find the place of unity with your spirit and your body. Help me. Let's pray into that right now because that's the whole point here, guys. We could go into worship and that's fine, but man, I'm telling you, nothing accentuates worship more than a genuine pursuit of wanting his heart and to know his heart and to be one with his heart. To be able to say like the Apostle Paul said, Said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. So Paul said, He desired such unity with, with Christ that he wanted to know the deep communing fellowship of Christ's sufferings because he saw that as the only true way to be united with him. And he lived it. He lived it. And as a result, God entrusted him to write the majority of the New Testament. And if we can get to that place where our heart is genuinely in a place where we want to know him in the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. I think he will entrust us with the ability to influence the nations again. He will entrust the church, this unified representative of Christ on the earth to influence kings and presidents and rulers and leaders and usher in a move of God that allows the whole earth to be filled with his glory. And then who knows, maybe Christ returns at that point. But That's big picture vision. What I want us to focus on is what do you do today when you leave here with God? What practical things do you change or do you ask God to produce the fruit of in your life? So let's stand up, let's just begin right now. Let this be the inaugural request before God for you to say, Do this work. Don't pretend like it's not going to be hard. Face the difficulty of it and recognize that with the spirit, you can do these hard things. You can make these hard decisions to see supernatural fruit in your life. will be demonstrated in your life that will cause younger people, and people who want to grow to come to you and say I've seen it in you, will you please train me, will you disciple me will you help me become like you will you help me follow Christ as you do begin to pray out loud get out of your comfort zone demonstrate a little bit of courage here and just begin to use your full strength here and begin to pray before the Lord Confess with our mouths, and we believe in our heart, and salvation is the result of that. And it's no different here as we pray. Just begin the request, Lord, do this thing. Holy Spirit, begin to move in this room right now. Do what only you can do, what no man can do, what no message can do, what no words can do, but what only you can do. That you would begin to stir in the heart of every man and woman in this place right now a deep desire and conviction based on your word and your truth to diligently pursue joining into this unity that you've invited us into to begin to love and appreciate the honor of being welcomed into your family and to be united as the people of God the privilege of changing and sacrificing whatever it takes to become one with this family of God.